Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting my podcast. You know, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like driving without car insurance. ExpressVPN acts as online insurance, creating a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So hackers can't steal your personal data. Just visit expressvpn.com gold to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Yesterday, we got news of the biggest corporate takeover in Australian history. When a company called Afterpay that just went public six years ago was bought by Square, which is Jack Dorsey's other company, the first one being Twitter, for $39 billion Australian dollars, which was about $29 billion U.S. dollars. It's an all-stock deal. And in fact, the deal was actually more valuable because shares of Square actually rose 10% on the news of the takeover. See, normally, when you have a normal uh, market, when one company buys another company at a premium and issues a bunch of stock, Normally, the stock of the acquiring company goes down, but not in today's crazy bubble world. In this bizarro world, the acquiring company goes up, which is exactly what happened, even though it has dramatically overpaid for a company which I don't even think has any value whatsoever. If you're not familiar with Afterpay, what their business model is, is acting as a middleman between merchants and let's say credit card companies so that instead of somebody going to a retailer online and buying something with a Visa or a MasterCard, they instead use Afterpay to pay and then they pay Afterpay with their Visa or their MasterCard. Now, they could also pay Afterpay, I suppose, through a direct deposit from their bank account, but I signed up for Afterpay 
And the first thing they ask you to do is put in a credit card, which is what I did. So I'm sure the vast majority of people who are signed up with Afterpay are paying Afterpay using their credit card. And, you know, when I heard a lot of the coverage of this takeover listening on CNBC, they're talking about Afterpay as if it is a competitor to the credit card companies. It's an alternative way for people to pay and they have lower fees. They don't have the late penalties aren't as high or the interest isn't as high. But the reality is it's not a competitor at all because everybody or most of the people who are using Afterpay are using their credit cards to pay Afterpay. All Afterpay is is another middleman that's getting in the way between the transaction. But their gimmick is if you use Afterpay At the point of sale, when you buy something, you only pay 25% of the cost. And the remaining 75% are charged to you in two-week intervals. So every two weeks, you get hit for another third of the cost. So there's basically four payments. The first payment that you make, you pay 25% of whatever you bought. And then you have three more payments, and then you're whole. And the whole process takes six weeks. So in other words, you basically get six weeks to pay for something rather than paying for it on day one. Now, for a lot of millennials who are counting every penny, hey, an extra six weeks to come up with the money, I guess that has some value because there is no downside to using Afterpay other than the fact that you can only use it at the merchants who have signed up for the service. Now, they have signed up 100,000 merchants and they're right on their website. So I guess there are a lot of different merchants that you can shop at. And when you shop at these merchants, you need to select Afterpay as your payment method. Now, how does Afterpay get revenue? Because there's charging no interest. As long as you make your payments on time, you don't pay anything extra. So it's completely free. So how does Afterpay make money? The merchants are paying Afterpay between 4 and 6% of every sale. Now, had you used your Visa or your MasterCard, the merchants would have paid Visa or MasterCard about 2%. So the net additional cost to the merchant for using Afterpay is 2 to 4%. Now, why are they paying it? Well, I guess Afterpay has convinced a lot of these merchants that because People don't have to pay right away because they can pay buy now and pay after, you know, in this case, six weeks after, that people are more likely to shop at the stores that accept Afterpay, and maybe they'll be willing to spend a little extra. And so you have these merchants that are giving this deal a try. But where does Afterpay get all the money to pay the merchants if they're not getting it from? The customers who actually bought the products, the answer is they're borrowing it, right? They're getting it from the central banks. They've got rock bottom interest rate costs. So their entire business model is to take advantage of extremely cheap interest rates to borrow money and to pay merchants so that the people who are buying the products can get a six-week interest-free loan. Now, this entire business model would not exist and could not exist but for the Federal Reserve. Without these rock-bottom interest rates, and it's not, again, not just the Federal Reserve, but 
the Australian Reserve Bank, right? Because it's an Australian company, but all the central banks, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, right? All of these banks artificially suppressing interest rates are temporarily creating an environment where this company could exist. But the crazy thing about it is even though the company exists, it still can't make any money. Even with these rock bottom interest rates, the company lost in the last 12 months, the company lost $63 million. And what's even more troubling to me, the company's only been around for about six years. During the six years that it's been around, or it's been public for six years, I'm not sure how many years it existed before it listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, but it's been a public company for six years. And during those six years, it's lost a total of about $85 million, 63 million of which is in the last 12 months. So 74% of the losses of the past six years happened in the last year. Yet this is the year where they had all the booming growth that was associated with COVID and everybody staying at home and shopping online and using Afterpay. Yet even in that environment with all these people signing up and using their service and rock bottom interest rates, the company still lost money and it's losing more money now than it was losing in the past. I mean, what you would like to see with a trend is the losses getting smaller over time. The losses are now bigger than ever in the most recent year. Now they do have revenue, but the acquisition price that Square paid represents 42 times their trailing revenue. Now, of course, Square didn't actually pay any money. Square bought the company for all stock and their stock, of course, is also inflated by the same bubble that has allowed Afterpay to even exist, Square trades at 236 times trailing earnings. Now, on a forward basis, the P is not quite as crazy, although it's still up in the stratosphere at 177 times estimated earnings. Of course, that's going to have to go up because they just issued or about to issue a whole bunch of stock to buy a company that is losing money. So now they're going to have more outstanding shares and they're going to have less earnings because now they're going to have to subtract the losses from Afterpay. So that forward PE is going to go up. Now, I suppose part of the value for this company is the fact that they've signed up 16 million users who are now using the platform. Well, sure. Yeah. If you give away a product for free, which they are in effect doing, they're letting people buy products and have six extra weeks to pay for it, you can get a lot of users. In fact, when I signed up, the first thing that happened after I signed up, and the sign-up process was very quick. I mean, really no KYC or anything like that. And all they wanted to have was my date of birth and my credit card and my name. That was pretty much it. And then I got the account. The first thing it asked me was, hey, here's a link to send to your friends. And for every person who signs up, they're going to pay me $10. And they're going to pay every one of my friends who signs up. $10. So, I mean, that's a lot of money uh, just for sending around a link. So I can see a bunch of millennials, hey, I can get a free $10 and my friend will get a free $10. Let's just sign up and then we can go buy something. There's no credit check. Nobody gets turned down. I think the initial limit is low. I think maybe it's $1,000. I'm not exactly sure. But what I read is that your own credit history will determine whether or not you are allowed to spend more and your limit is increased. If you miss a payment, which happens every two weeks, then there's, a, I think, a $10 penalty or something like that. Now, my payments are on auto pay because I gave them my credit card. 
So I'm still using my credit card to buy the product, except instead of having one charge on my credit card, I'm now going to have four charges spanned out over six weeks. So in other words, if you think about how that works with your credit card cycle, because when you buy something on a credit card and you pay your balance in full every month, which is what I do, you get an interest-free loan already because of the cycle. You buy something today, you may not pay for it for another four to six weeks. Well, based on what would happen if I chose to pay with afterpay, that period would get extended because these charges aren't going to show up on my credit card for maybe another month or so or six weeks. And so I'm going to have an even longer grace period in which to pay for something I just bought, right? So, you know, why not? I mean, people will do that because you don't lose any of your points, right? A lot of people want to use their credit card to buy stuff because they get points, right? Either it's mileage, if they're in a mileage program, or they get cash back, or there's all sorts of perks that you get when you use credit cards. There are no perks that you get when you use Afterpay. The only perk is you pay a little bit later. But since you're still ultimately using your Visa or your MasterCard, you're not giving up any of those benefits. So Afterpay is in no way a threat to Visa and MasterCard. I mean, Visa and MasterCard are probably very happy to deal with one big payer uh, that's aggregating all of these small payments. And I suppose it's a better credit risk because they know they're going to get paid from Afterpay. A lot of these small accounts, it's pretty dubious. In fact, I think ultimately there is going to be big losses for Afterpay because I think a lot of people are going to not pay the money that they borrow. And the reason is the maximum late penalty that you can have on Afterpay is 25%, no matter how late you are in your payment. So let's say you max out your $1,000 and then you decide not to pay. Over time, you're going to rack up $250 of late penalties. But once you get to $250, there's no more penalties, no matter when you pay. So why pay? I mean, there's absolutely no incentive to pay. Just leave the balance there. Now, in theory, I suppose Afterpay could maybe take the account to collections, but I really don't think they're going to do that. I don't think they want the bad publicity. I don't think they want the regulatory scrutiny of now going after people who haven't paid. I have a feeling that if you don't pay, they're just not going to get the money. And you know, the only negative thing for you is you can't use the service anymore, but the service doesn't really deliver that much value to the point that you might be willing to pay $1,000 for the privilege of paying for stuff six weeks later, you might just prefer to never pay the $1,000 that you spent and just go back to using your Visa or your MasterCard because you can go there and you can take your payment card off whenever you want. You're not required to make these payments. And the other ticking time bomb for this business model is what happens when interest rates eventually go up because all of the money that they earn, other than the late penalties, right? They do make money. If you do pay late, they make a little money. But I don't even think that's going to offset what they lose from the people who don't pay at all, right? But right now, they are able to make a little bit of money, although they're still not making a profit. But I guess there is a spread between the cost of borrowing the money and the 2 to 4% net fee. Because remember, they collect 4 to 6% from the merchants, but then they have to pay back maybe 2% or so to the credit card companies because now they're the merchant, right? Because now their customers are paying using Visa or MasterCard. So now they've got to pay for that. So let's say they're earning 
2 to 4% on every dollar that's spent, but they have to borrow that dollar and pay it to the merchants. Well, right now, the cost of borrowing this dollar is very, very low. But what happens if interest rates really rise and credit dries up, and now all of a sudden it costs a lot more money to borrow? Because if they can't make money now, right, in this booming environment where they're signing up all these people and you have rock bottom interest rates, if they're losing money now, imagine how much more money they're going to lose when interest rates go up. So this company has a short shelf life. It is going to exist so long as the bubble doesn't pop. But eventually, it's going to deflate. And this company would have gone bankrupt, in my opinion, had Square not bought it. Now, you know, will Square eventually go bankrupt? Probably not. But I think the price of Square stock is eventually going to collapse. And in fact, it's even more overvalued now that they made the mistake of buying Afterpay than it was before they bought it. Of course, when it comes to middlemen, normally everybody's trying to figure out how to cut out the middleman, not add another middleman. And what's really ridiculous is that every single one of Afterpay's customers can do exactly what Afterpay is doing without Afterpay. There's nothing that stops a merchant from giving its customers the option to have their credit card charged in four installments spread out over six weeks. They can do it on their own and they won't have to pay after pay the extra two to 4%. The reason they're not doing it is because they don't want to take the risk of not getting paid. They want to make sure they get the money because they know if they give people the option of buying now and paying later, if they actually ship out the merchandise without getting the money, they may never get the money. So they're offloading all that risk on Afterpay, and Afterpay couldn't give a damn about the risk because they're not making money anyway. All they're trying to do is goose their share price by getting revenue growth and customer signups. And the way they do that is by selling a service with absolutely no barriers to entry at a price that is lower than the cost to the company of providing those services, which is why Square is going to ultimately lose a lot of money on this acquisition. In fact, there's nothing that stops Amazon from doing the exact same thing if that's what they want to do. I mean, Amazon isn't one of Afterpay's customers, but if Amazon wanted to, whenever you put stuff in your cart and go to check out, they can have the option if you'd like to have your payments spread out over six weeks, check here and we'll just charge your credit card in installments. They can do that if they want to. They probably don't, but they could. Now, those smaller mom and pop merchants, if they were going to give their customers the option of buying now and having their payments spread out over six weeks, they may need to bridge that gap by getting a line of credit from their bank so that they have the money right away to pay their other operating expenses. But a company like Amazon, its balance sheet is certainly big enough that it can self-finance the entire thing. In fact, what they really could do is once they did that, They can spin the whole thing off as a separate company, call it after Amazon, and maybe they can IPO it with a $29 billion valuation. You know, it reminds me of that scene in There's Something About Mary, where the hitchhiker's in the car, and he's talking about his new business plan to compete with a popular workout video, 8-Minute Abs. He's going to launch his own workout video, 7-Minute Abs. When a company like Afterpay can have a $29 billion valuation. That's a powerful incentive for other people to come up with competing companies to cash in. So let's say 
somebody comes up with later pay. And later pay gives you eight weeks to pay instead of six. So imagine you go to your online retailer and you fill up your cart with the stuff you want to buy. And then you go to checkout and you see the various payment options. And one of them is after pay, where you got six weeks to pay. And then the other one is later pay, where you got eight weeks to pay. Which one are you going to choose? So later pay is going to keep eating into the market share of after pay, of course, until somebody else comes out with much later pay. And much later pay gives you 10 weeks to pay, right? So since there's really no barriers to entry, more companies can keep starting up and the grace period gets longer and longer until eventually some genius comes up with the brilliant idea of never pay and he corners the entire market. But the bigger picture example here, and what I really want to discuss is this ridiculous misallocation of resources. What a complete waste because after pay doesn't produce anything. They don't produce any products. They don't really offer any services. All they are is a middleman. They just interpose themselves between the customer and the merchant, an extra layer for the same payment. And again, I talked about this on an earlier podcast. Everybody is now trying to make money by monetizing retail spending, whether it's for advertising or buying stuff, but they're not actually making any of the stuff that people buy. All they're trying to do is delay the time with which people have to pay for the stuff they buy. And what makes all of this possible? The loans. But these are all consumer loans. These aren't loans that are going to make investments that are going to increase our productive capacity and result in more goods and services to buy. All we're doing is finding clever ways to pay later for the goods and services that we are buying, but that we're not making. So this is simply part of this inflationary bubble, this big misallocation of resources that is going to have to unwind. Right? This is going to be very painful when this thing collapses and all these companies have to be liquidated. All these workers have to lose their jobs. All this money that was invested ends up getting lost. But the entire world is rendered much poorer as a result because all of this money could have gone to more productive purposes and would have gone to more productive purposes, but for the artificially low interest rates and the inflationary environment created by the world's central banks. They are the reason that these companies exist. They are the reason that these companies are attracting capital. They are the reason that they're able to bid away resources and labor from other uses that are actually more productive but in the short run, in this bubble economy, it is more profitable on paper to finance this speculative mania than it would be to finance legitimate investment, which is simply fueling this inflationary fire because all we're doing is focusing on demand. How do we create more demand? How do we get more people to want to buy more stuff? And one way is you don't have to pay for the stuff or you pay for the stuff even later. So we're creating demand while we're diminishing supply. Because all the resources that are going into trying to accelerate demand are being sucked out of producing supply. So we're making less stuff to buy, but we're creating more money and more demand to buy it. So this is inflationary holocaust. This is what's coming. Anybody that can look at this environment and somehow conclude that this is transitory. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. 
Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. You know, I was watching on CNBC and Stephanie Link, who is a strategist from one of the firms, was on there and she's starting to act a little concerned that the inflation isn't going to be transitory. She's thinking, well, maybe the transitory period is going to last for three years. And she said, that's a long time. Three years is a long time for Americans to have to live with high inflation. Well, what she doesn't seem to get is it's not just three years. Americans are going to be living with the inflation of the next three years for the rest of their lives. And that's even if it only lasts for three years, which it won't. Because the price increases that we're experiencing today and that we're going to experience tomorrow and for the next three years, according to Stephanie Link, those price increases are never going to be rolled back. In fact, according to Powell, all that's going to happen after the transitory period ends is the rate of increase is going to slow back down to 2% a year. But whatever the big increase was during the transitory period, whether it's 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%, whatever those price increases are, they're never being reversed. So Americans are going to have to pay these higher prices for every year, for the rest of their lives. It's not like they're just going to pay them for three years and then they're going back to where they were. They're never going back to where they were. But the reality is this inflationary snowball is not going to stop rolling down the hill like magic in three years. It's going to gather momentum and it's going to get bigger and bigger. We all take risks every time we go online, whether we think about those risks or not. We just assume that our connectivity probably won't be interrupted by hackers or that our data probably won't be used against us. But using the internet without ExpressVPN, well, that's like driving your car without auto insurance. Why would you take that risk when you don't have to? You see, every time you connect to an unencrypted network in a cafe, hotel, airport, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, your passwords, financial details, stuff like that. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack, just some cheap hardware and a smart 12-year-old who knows how to use it. Your data is very valuable, and hackers can make up to $1,000 per person by selling your personal information on the dark web. That's where ExpressVPN comes in. It acts as your online insurance. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your personal data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past the ExpressVPN encryption. And ExpressVPN is simple to use on all your devices. Just fire up the app and click on one button and you're golden. I use ExpressVPN personally all the time. In fact, not only to protect my data, but also to enable me to access content 
that I otherwise would not be able to access based on the fact that I'm living in Puerto Rico most of the time, because a lot of content that is available in the States is not available here. And in fact, I recently spent a month in Switzerland and I would have been in a lot of trouble if I didn't have my ExpressVPN because there were certain financial sites that I needed access to and I simply could not get access to them from Switzerland. But when I had my ExpressVPN up, I was able to access those sites no problem. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash gold. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash gold. And you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. But now I want to switch gears and talk about a controversy that erupted last week regarding the gaming company Activision Blizzard, which has been hit with a massive lawsuit by the state of California alleging all sorts of sexual harassment and gender-based discrimination. And it's not just the lawsuit itself, but it's the way the company's employees have in fact responded to the lawsuit and are siding with the state of California against their own employer. In fact, as soon as the lawsuit was made public, the company denied vehemently all of the accusations, which of course is what you would expect. I mean, how many people, when they're accused of doing something wrong, just admit that they did something wrong? Of course, they deny the accusations. And so that's exactly what Activision did. But then the employees were outraged by the fact that their company would deny these allegations. After all, you have to believe all allegations when it comes to sexual discrimination or sexual harassment. So the company should not have denied it. They should have been more sensitive to all of the female workers who supposedly have been discriminated against and harassed. And so they really shouldn't have denied the accusations. Maybe they should have just pled guilty and just dispensed with the entire lawsuit. In fact, thousands of the employees staged a walkout to protest the company's response. And I actually read that the company decided to give its workers a paid day off in order to protest the company. I mean, the company was under so much pressure, they did officially apologize for their denial and their lack of sensitivity regarding the denial. And in fact, the Activision employees are actually encouraging a boycott of their own products. They are trying to get customers, the people who buy the games that Activision Blizzard produces, they want people to boycott the games in protest to their own employers. I mean, this is the company that they work for. The only reason they get paid a salary is because people are buying these video games. If people stop buying the video games, the company doesn't have any revenue and they can't pay their workers their salaries. So they don't even care about it. They're putting politics above the welfare of their own employers for whom they're dependent on for their own livelihood. But I really want to go into the ridiculousness of the allegations surrounding this lawsuit. And of course, to me, this lawsuit is a neon flashing sign, basically to anybody who is thinking about setting up a business in California, it's like, stop, don't do it. And I don't know why anybody at this point would be dumb enough to want to start a business in California. But if you were that dumb, 
This is your wake-up call to stop you from doing it. I'm sure there are a lot of businesses that are in California right now that wish they could get out. Of course, there's a lot of problems if you're already in business in California and a lot of your employees already work there. It's not that easy to just pull up stakes and move. But believe me, I'm sure a lot of companies are thinking about it and they're thinking about it even stronger now that they've seen this ridiculous lawsuit brought by the state of California. I read the entirety of the complaint. It's up there online, so you can read the complaint if you want. But one of the things that has been alleged is that the company is discriminating against women because it's not hiring enough women. And they point out that only 20-something percent of the employees are women. And I actually dug a little deeper and the actual number is 25%. So the lawsuit actually understates it a little bit by saying 20%, not 25%. But if you just look at that, you might think, well, there must be some discrimination because after all, 50% of the population are women. And therefore, if only 25% of Activision Blizzard's employees are women, well, clearly they, they must be discriminating. Except you have to look at the industry in which the company operates. It's a technology company, right? A lot of the people who are working for this company are programming. They're working on creating video games. So if you look at the technology industry as a whole, that's about par for the course. You look at all the big tech companies and it's about 25% women. I mean, Activision Blizzard is pretty much representative of the entire tech industry. So clearly, they're not discriminating unless everybody in tech is discriminating. Except if you look at the percentage of people who graduate from college with a computer science degree, right? it's only about 20% are women. So clearly, if you don't have a lot of women who are studying computer science, well, when companies are hiring programmers or people that work in the tech industry, they're not going to be drawing from the same size pool when it comes to females as males. They're just not going to have as many qualified women to hire as they will for men. So the fact that women represent 20% of the computer science degrees and they're 25% of the people who are hired uh, by these tech companies. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't indicate that there's any active attempt on the part of these companies not to hire women. And of course, why would they? Companies want to hire the most competent people for the job. It doesn't matter what their sex is. What matters is how well they can do the job. And I'm sure if Activision could find more competent women to hire, women that were more competent than the men that they had to choose from, well, they would clearly hire the women instead. So simply the fact that the numbers don't match the actual percentage of women in the population proves nothing. In fact, take a look at the publishing industry because that industry is dominated by women. In fact, about 75% of the people who work in publishing are women. So it really is the mirror image of technology. So why is that? Why do you have all these women that are in publishing? Well, I think while a lot of the men are majoring in sciences like computer science, you have more women who are studying liberal arts or humanities. And so there's more women who are interested in, are qualified for, and who are applying for jobs in publishing. And that's why so many publishing companies 
are hiring women. It's not because they're discriminating against men. It's simply because there are more women who are qualified for the jobs and there are more women who want the jobs and who are applying for the jobs. So obviously there are more women who get the jobs. Now, we don't see anybody in government. We don't see California trying to file some lawsuits against some publishing companies claiming that they're discriminating against men, that they're not hiring enough men, that they got too many women. Well, if they're going to make the same BS argument against the tech companies and say, hey, simply because you don't have enough female employees, well, therefore, you must be discriminating against women. Well, then the same has to hold true for the publishing companies. If they don't have enough male employees, well, then it stands to reason that it's because they're discriminating against men. In fact, if you look at the rest of the demographic of Activision, they have about 49% of their employees are minorities. That seems like a lot to me. I mean, 49% minority. So they're not discriminating against minorities. They're just discriminating against women. But, you know, the only thing that really stands out to me where you could make the argument that there is some discrimination going on is when it comes to politics. 86% of the Activision Blizzard employees are registered Democrats. 86%. Now, I know California is a Democratic state, but only about 45% of the people in California are registered Democrats, yet more than twice that number are employees of Activision. Now, sure, they're headquartered in Santa Monica, right? The People's Republic of Santa Monica. So Santa Monica is even more Democratic than the state as a whole. But I looked at the last presidential election and 30% of Santa Monica voted Republican, Well, obviously, 30% of Activision didn't vote Republican. There may not be anybody in Activision because you've got 86% registered Democrats. That doesn't include all the independents. So you'd probably be hard-pressed to find uh, many Trump voters in Activision. So to the extent that you can deduct from any numbers that there's any discrimination at all going on at Activision, it is discrimination against Republicans. But, you know, it's not just that the government is saying that they're discriminating in their hiring practices. See, the biggest aspect of this lawsuit, this fraternity-like environment that the company was supposedly fostering at the company, where the women were subjected to constant sexual harassment. Now, to the extent that these allegations are true, and I doubt that they are, but to the extent that they are true, if 86% of the employees of Activision Blizzard are Democrat, well, then the harassment is also being done by the Democrats. And the lawsuit acknowledges that management is looking the other way when all these Democrats are harassing all these women. But of course, the management, they're probably Democrats too. After all, why would a bunch of Republicans, if the management was Republicans, hire 86% Democrats. To the extent that management is discriminating against Republicans, it's probably because they themselves are Democrats. So you've got Democrats running the company. You've got Democrats who are the employees. So these allegations, if they're true, they're being made against Democrats. But I think that is the main reason that you're getting all of these employees protesting the company. It's not because the company is guilty. It's because they're Democrats, and that's the politically correct thing to do. Because after all, you have got to 
defend all victims. And in this case, it's not like the women themselves are bringing the lawsuit. It's the state of California that's bringing the lawsuit. California is the plaintiff, and it supposedly has all these examples of uh, discrimination. But that's where the lawsuit really gets ridiculous. Because if you read it, the central allegation by the state of California is that there is massive gender pay gap at this company, that the women are paid much less than the men. But it's not just that they're being paid less, they're actually working harder and working smarter, that the women are actually performing at a higher level. The women are more productive. This is what the lawsuit alleges. The women are more productive, yet they're being paid less than the men. And in fact, the men are a bunch of slackers. They're getting drunk. They're showing up to the office drunk. They're not really doing the work. The women, these underpaid women, are having to pick up the slack for all these overpaid men. Then the lawsuit alleges that when it comes time to promote people, the men, right, who are overpaid and not really doing the work, they're the ones who are getting promoted. And the women, right, who are doing all the hard work and who have better performance, well, they're just getting passed over. But what's really crazy is then they say when it comes to firing, right, when the company has to fire somebody, they always fire the women first and the men last, which makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, think about it from this perspective, right? I'm the boss, right? And I've got to make some cutbacks in employees. I got to let some people go. Who am I going to let go? I got all these women who are working cheap and they're doing all this work, right? They're doing most of the work and I'm paying them really cheap. Or I got a bunch of men who are goofing off and getting drunk and they're overpaid. And now I got to fire somebody. Who am I going to fire? I mean, I'm not going to fire any of the women. I'm only going to fire men. In fact, if these allegations were true, if the women were actually so much less expensive and did so much work, that's all they'd hire would be women. But they can't because there's not as many women who are qualified to do the job, right? That's why they don't have more. But the last thing this company is going to want to do is get rid of their women because their women are so much more productive than the men and they work for so much less money why would they fire them? They're going to hold on to these women as best they can, which in and of itself is proof that these allegations are nonsense. I mean, think about it from this perspective. Think about it from the perspective of these female employees. According to the state of California, they are going to work every day and it's hell, right? They are subjected to constant sexual harassment, right? All day long at work, Yet they're willing to put up with all this harassment despite the fact that they're getting underpaid and despite the fact that they're overworked. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, there's only two reasons that a woman would put up with this type of environment. One would be it doesn't bother her or maybe she likes it, right? It doesn't bother her. I mean, some people might think, well, that's crazy, right? All women are going to be bothered by this type of sexual harassment. Well, that's not true. I mean, I happened to have dated a girl. I remember when I was in my 20s, this is a long time ago, but I had this girlfriend for a while and she worked as a greeter in a law firm. And so what her job was, was to sit in a desk and to look pretty when their clients in the law firm arrived. She wasn't the receptionist. They had another person that answered the phones. She was just there sitting in a desk 
to greet people that came to the office and you know maybe she would get him some water or a cup of coffee and then she would go back and sit at her desk. So I remember talking to her about her job and she was telling me about how all the lawyers in her firm were just constantly hitting on her. Like every day there was some type of sexual remark. They always commented on her clothes, what she was wearing, how she looked. They would actually send messages. I was surprised that they would put it in writing, but they were sending her uh, messages to her desk of a sexual nature. And I remember saying to her, you know, you've got a hell of a sexual harassment lawsuit uh, if you want to file one. Not that I even, you know, believe in these types of suits, but given the degree to which she was telling me she was getting all this, I was like, I'm surprised that lawyers, I mean, of all people would know, you figure they'd be sensitive to lawsuits, uh, but their conduct is exposing this law firm to a lot of liability. And then she said to me, well, why would I want to do that? This is the only thing that makes a job entertaining. I mean, the job is boring other than the fact that these guys are hitting on me. And so she actually enjoyed all the attention that she was getting. In fact, I think that she dressed the way she did because she liked the reaction that she was getting from the men at the office. So not all women are offended by this type of conduct. I mean, some women like it. Maybe they're in the minority, but it's possible, right? So she didn't quit the job despite the fact that she got all this so-called harassment because she actually liked it, right? She enjoyed the attention. So as far as she was concerned, the sexual harassment was a perk. The other reason that a woman may put up with a environment that is sexually hostile, that she doesn't like, would be if she was paid very well, right? Let's say I'm running a business and I know the working conditions for women are not ideal because the men are you know, acting like a bunch of frat boys. Well, maybe I have to pay the women a lot more money in order to get them to endure that type of abuse. And to the extent that they're willing to accept their trade-off, hey, I could work at another company that has a less toxic environment where I'm not going to have to be offended by this and I can make less money or I could make more money and have to deal with this type of attitude. Well, that's a fair choice. And if to the extent that women are willing to trade a less than ideal working environment for more money, well, that's their prerogative. They could do that. But what's happening here at Blizzard Activision is the government, California government, is saying that these women who are not quitting their jobs, right, they are choosing to come to work every day in this toxic environment, yet they're willing to do it at a discount price. They're willing to show up at a job that they don't like and accept lower pay than their male counterparts. And not only are they accepting lower pay, they're actually doing more work because the guys are not doing anything. Uh, they're just getting drunk and harassing all the women. Yet, for some reason, the women aren't quitting. This is all nonsense. The free market is the best way to make sure that women are treated fairly on the job because companies right, want to have the most competent workforce that they can attract. And to the extent that you need to hire women, you're not going to be able to attract them. You're not going to be able to retain them if you are not providing them with a work environment in which they can flourish. If you're going to be subjecting your women to a hostile type environment, such as the one that is alleged 
by this lawsuit, you're not going to keep your women. They're either going to quit or they're going to force you to pay them so much extra so that they don't quit that you're not going to be competitive in the market, that your competitors who treat women better, they're going to be able to hire the women who won't work for you. And now you're going to have a problem competing because they're going to have a more talented, more productive workforce. So no businessman is going to put up with the type of environment that is alleged to exist by the state of California. Now, is it possible when you're talking about 9,500 employees? So this is not a small company, right? And the majority of these guys are men, 75% are men, and they're probably younger men, right? Because think about it, they're in the video gaming industry. I mean, this is a male-dominated product. I mean, there are women, I've read that maybe 40% of the gamers or people who play video games are are women. Uh, But as far as identification as being a gamer, right, only 6% of women self-identify as being gamers, whereas 15% of men, uh, so more than twice as many. And I read that men are more than three times as likely to buy video games as women, meaning women will play video games. Maybe they're playing with their boyfriends, but they're not going out and buying them. It's the men who are buying most of these games, especially uh, these Activision games. I mean, their most popular game, Call of Duty, right? This is all about warfare, right? This particular game is more targeted at men than video games in general. So it makes sense that you would have uh, more men, even than a normal tech company, Uh, working at Activision Blizzard. I mean, people that play video games probably are more likely to want to work for a video game company, and they're likely more in tune uh, with the user because they use the product themselves, so they may do a better job when it comes to developing the games and things like that. But you got a lot of these young men, chances are that some of these men probably said something inappropriate to some of the women There are probably some of these men who may have made unwanted sexual advances at some of these women. Sure, this happens all the time. It happens in real life. It's not just confined to the workplace, right? Men are saying rude things to women all the time, right? And women are hearing these things, not just on the job. They're hearing them out in life, out in society. Men make sexual advances towards women. Of course, that's what they do. It's up to the man in general to make the first move. The guy doesn't know if the advance is wanted or not until he gauges the reaction from the woman. So this is life. I'm sure, though, that the management at Activision has done everything it can to discourage this. They probably have policies. You can't date people that work in the company, which, of course, I think is a shame. I think a lot of people used to meet their husband or wife on the job. People spend a lot of time at work. I mean, it was a nice place to meet members of the opposite sex. You can't even do that anymore because of the toxic environment we're in where the hypersensitivity. I'm sure that activism blizzard doesn't want to be sued. They don't want to be subject to sexual harassment lawsuits or discrimination lawsuits. So they're doing everything they can to make sure that their male employees are not abusing or mistreating in any way their female employees. But of course, it's going to happen, right? It's impossible for it not to happen at all. I'm sure all the state has done is they've taken maybe a couple of examples that may be true, and they've completely embellished it to paint a totally false picture of this company. But this is what it means to operate a business 
in America. You're public enemy. You've got a target on your back. And this is another reason that none of this should be illegal because of the way it can be abused. Look, if a company wants to overpay men and underpay women, that's their prerogative, right? Let's see how long they stay in business. Their competitors are going to hire all these women. In the marketplace, you get what you're worth, right? The idea that businesses can just underpay women, if that was true, that's all they'd hire would be women, right? If they're willing to work so cheap, why hire men and overpay them when you got a bunch of women who will do the job for less money, right? The truth of the matter is they don't do the job for less money. That's why companies don't only hire women. They're not going to promote people who are incompetent over the people who are competent. They're going to promote their best people. They want to give their best people more responsibility. And if you don't promote your best people, your best people are going to quit because somebody else is going to offer them a better job. You know, the complaint starts off by mentioning how successful the company is, how it's dominant in its industry. How can this company have grown to be so successful if the management is so incompetent? If, if this is really how they run their business, they promote their less qualified men. They allow the men to drink on the job and sexually harass the women and they're underpaying all their women. You know, how can they be making such bad managerial decisions when it comes to employment and who they fire, right? They're firing the women, the women that are doing all the work for less money. They're the ones that they're firing and they're holding on to the drunken, incompetent men who are slacking off on the job. How is it that they're so incompetent when it comes to managing their personnel, yet they're so successful as a business? Clearly, there's an inconsistency there. The fact that they've succeeded means that they are not making these type of reckless decisions, but they are making their decisions based on merit, that they are paying people what the market will bear. They are promoting the people who are most qualified for the promotions. And when it comes to firing people, they're firing the people based on the best economic outcome for the firm, not simply based on the gender of the people they're firing. And come to think of it, there's another reason why it's ridiculous that the women would be the first to be fired. Think about it. If you really are having this widespread sexual harassment, right? Every day, all the men are sexually harassing all these women. Well, first of all, there's only 25% of the company are women. So there's not that many women to harass as a percentage of the total employee population. And assuming the men are deriving some type of enjoyment out of all this sexual harassment, which is supposedly why they're doing it, why would they want to fire the women that they're sexually harassing? Because once they fire them, they can't harass them anymore. You would think that you've got all these women who are putting up with all this sexual harassment. They're not quitting and they're doing the work for less pay. Again, they're the last people that you're going to want to fire. If anything, you're going to try to hire more of these women that you can underpay and sexually harass. As a matter of fact, today just so happens to be Black Women's Equal Pay Day. And what that means is that today is the date that Black women had to work from January 1st until today to make up their pay gap with white men and what they earned last year. Because according to the proponents of this gender pay gap, 
the gap between black women and white men is much bigger than the gap between women in general and men in general, where the number is 82 cents on the dollar. So black women, they work extra cheap. That's why their equal payday falls so much later in the year than it does for white women. And so there's a lot of news stories about this and how we have to do something to close this gender pay gap because it's not fair. I mean, black women, I guess, are doubly discriminated against. They're discriminated against by bigots who don't like black people, and they're discriminated against by sexists who don't like women. And so they get a double whammy of discrimination, and therefore they're only paid 63 cents to do a dollar's worth of work. But of course, this is all complete BS because there is no real gender pay gap because no employer can force anybody to take a job for 63 cents on the dollar. You just can't do it because the black women have a choice over where they want to work. And if their skills are more valuable than 63 cents on some dollar, then they're going to get paid. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of businesses in the country that are owned by women, where women are doing the hiring. There are a lot of businesses that are owned by African-Americans, where African-Americans are doing the hiring. So why can't these black women work for companies that are owned by women, unless the women are also discriminating against other women? And the same could be true for black-owned businesses. Are black business owners paying black workers less money because they're black? Are they racist too? Are women sexist too? Of course not, because nobody is. The truth of the matter is, in a free market, employers are bidding for employees and workers accept the best offer they can get. So if somebody is offering to pay more, uh, then that's where they're going to go. In reality, if this really was true, if black women were actually doing the same work as white men, and you can hire them to do the exact same job, yet they would do it for just 63 cents on the dollar, that's all you would hire is black women. I mean, why would anybody hire a white man and pay him a dollar if you could just hire some black woman and she'll do the exact same job for 63 cents? Think about it with numbers. Let's say the white man requires $100,000 a year to do a job. Now here's this black woman. And in theory, I can pay this black woman $63,000. She'll take the job and she will do it just as well as the white guy. Well, why would I possibly hire the white guy? Because I can save $37,000 a year if I hire the black woman. Why wouldn't I do that? I mean, you can say, well, maybe maybe I am a sexist. I don't like women. Maybe I'm a racist. I don't like blacks. Maybe, but don't I like $37,000? How much of a racist am I? Am I willing to pay $37,000 a year to be a sexist and a racist? And of course, that's only if I'm hiring one person. What if I have to hire 10 guys at $100,000 a year, or I can hire 10 black women at $63,000 a year now I'm saving $370,000 a year. Is there anybody in America such a big racist and sexist that they would pay $370,000 a year not to have to work with black women? I doubt it. You know, Maybe, maybe 
when there's only one. Maybe there's somebody who is willing to pay the extra $37,000 to be a sexist bigot. But think about this. Let's say there is somebody who is running a company and just refuses to hire all these cheap black women because he hates women and he hates blacks, right? And he's paying $100,000 just to hire a white guy who's not doing the job any better. Well, you don't do that in a vacuum. You have competition. And so your competitors who are not racists, who are not sexists, they're taking advantage of all these black women that are willing to work cheap and they're hiring them. And now they've got a lower labor cost structure than you. And so now they can outcompete you. They can offer lower prices than you. And you're not going to stay in business if you are a bigot and refusing to hire competent, qualified women or blacks. And of course, assuming the women were at one point being paid 63 cents on the dollar, somebody is going to bid 64 cents. Someone's going to bid 70 cents. Someone's going to bid 75 cents. The pay is going to keep on being bid up until it's equal. The only reason that there may be a preference, and I've talked about this on other podcasts and I don't want to get into it again here, but the only reason that some small businesses might prefer to hire white men is because they're less likely to sue you if you fire them. They're also less likely to file a gender-based or a sexual discrimination-based lawsuit. So if you're hiring white men, they are safer to hire in that you have less legal liability as a result of the hire. And there is some value there, but that has nothing to do with racism. That has something to do with all the laws that are meant to punish people for being racist when we don't need those laws because the free market punishes people for being racist. The government rewards people for discriminating because in the free market, if you discriminate and you don't hire competent black women, you're not going to survive because your competitors will. But now, based on the laws that make it very easy for women or blacks or other minorities to sue their employers, there is now an advantage to not hiring members of that group because you limit your legal liability. And so the government has now created a reward, a positive incentive to discriminate, whereas the free market does the opposite. It punishes people who discriminate, whereas the government rewards them. In fact, I want to finish up with this one example of this gender pay gap that I just happened to read an article about because there was a recent appeal filed, and this has to do with women's soccer players. And the women's soccer team, which you know, is historically, or at least recently, been a very good team. They they recently won the World Cup, although they were just eliminated, I guess, in the Olympics uh, by, by Canada. But they recently won the World Cup. And the women do a lot better on the national stage than the men. Because, of course, soccer is not nearly as big in America as it is in Latin America or Europe. And so our best athletes don't play soccer. They play football right, which is what they call soccer every place else but America. They play basketball. They play baseball. So we don't get our best athletes in soccer, whereas in Europe, all the best athletes are on the soccer field. That's what they do. And so we we just can't compete in that arena. But when I first heard about the women and they were suing because they claimed that the men were being paid more than they were, and therefore it was uh, discrimination, 
I just assumed that the men were paid more because I figured, you know, it's sports. I thought that probably more spectators in America are interested in men's soccer than are interested in women's soccer. And that therefore I assumed that the men's soccer league had more revenue with which to pay higher salaries to the male players. So I didn't think it was sexist that the women were getting paid less. I just thought it had to do with the economics of the sport. There just wasn't as much money in women's soccer. So there wasn't as much money to pay the players, right? They didn't get as much advertisement money. They didn't get as much endorsement money, whatever. Those were my assumptions. Well, it turns out I was actually wrong because I found out when the women's players just recently filed an appeal because they sued originally and they lost in court. The court said, no, there is no discrimination. And so, you know, they threw out the case. They're now appealing that decision. And the men's players are now supporting the women, right? They are saying that, yes, we support the women. They should be paid the same as the men, except the reason that the lower court threw out the case was because, as it just so happens, the women were paid more than the men, which to me didn't even make sense. But those are the facts. And so you might think, well, how can that be? How could the women's players be paid more than the men? Well, it just so happens that they are. And I've got, you know, the numbers in front of me. And, you know, you can see them. They're out there, not making it up. But here's where the disparity came from. The men have a compensation package where they get no base salary and no fringe benefits, right? No health insurance, no pensions, nothing. All they do is get paid a set amount of money for every game they play. And they get a little bit more if they win the game than if they lose the game. And if they tie the game, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. Then if they make it to the World Cup, you know, they get some extra money for those games. And then if they win the whole thing, you know, they get even more money. That's their package. The women had a very different package, but the women got paid less money than the men for the games that they played. And they got paid less money for winning the World Cup, which they actually did. So a lot of this controversy started when the women made public how much they were going to get or how much they were paid for winning the World Cup. But had the men won the World Cup, right, they would have gotten four times as much as the women. And that was the basis of this gender pay gap. You see, the women are doing the same job playing soccer, even though obviously they're not necessarily playing at the same caliber as the men. But that's a whole different discussion. But they're playing soccer. They won. And they got one fourth of what the men would have got had the men won. Except what nobody talked about was the rest of their contract because the women had a totally different contract where they actually got salaries in addition to what they earned for each game that they played. So 20 of the players on the female soccer team were paid a base salary of $100,000 a year. None of the men got any base salary. Then there were 11 players who got a little bit less. Maybe these players weren't as good, and they got between 62000 and 67000 but still much better than the men who got nothing. Then all of the women shared a $230,000 signing bonus. They got a revenue share. They got $1.50 for every ticket that was sold. They got $5,000 bonus for something. 
They had other benefits. They had injury protection. They had health care. They had dental care. They had vision. They had a pregnancy package. Obviously, the men didn't need that, but they didn't have any of the health care. They had some child care assistance. They had some other partnership deals. They got paid if the soccer league used their image. Apparently, they could use the men's images for free, but if they used the women's images, they had to pay the women. They also were sharing in a big bonus pool, like a $250,000 or $350,000 pool to do a post-World Cup tour. So when you add up all of these other non-cash and cash benefits and salaries, the women actually earned more money than the men in the most recent year that they played soccer. And in fact, had the male players had the women's package instead of their own, even though they didn't win the World Cup, but had they had their package, the men would have actually earned more playing under the women's compensation package than they earned paying under their own package. But had the women had the men's package, they would have ended up earning more only because they did in fact win the World Cup because the men's package is a much more aggressive package. There's a lot of risk there because there is no base salary. It's all based on what you do on the field. And so the men are taking a risk where they're going to get more money if they do really well, but if they have a lousy season, they're going to get less. The women didn't want to take that risk. They wanted to make sure that even if they had a lousy season and they lost all their games, they still had this base salary and they had all these other things that were guaranteed. So the women didn't want to roll the dice and just gamble on winning the World Cup. Except once they won the World Cup, they wanted to turn back the clock and now they wanted that package. But the reality is they were offered that package. That's another shocker. The women were actually offered the exact same deal that the men had, and they turned it down because they preferred their deal because their deal was safer because they didn't want to just gamble on winning the World Cup. But of course, since they did win the World Cup, now they want to go backwards and rewrite the deal and force the soccer league to pay them as if they had a contract that they rejected. And in fact, they don't even really want the men's contract. What they want is the best part of their own contract and the best part of the men's contract. See, they don't want to give up their salaries. They don't want to give up their fringe benefits. They just want to retroactively cherry pick the higher money that the men were paid to win the World Cup or win these games, and they want that too. But they don't want to give up what the men didn't have, which is all the salary and the fringe benefits. So they want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. Right. So this is not an example of the women being underpaid. Right. The women don't even want equal pay. They want to be paid more than the men. Right. They want to take less risk, but they want to be paid more at the same time. So in other words, what equal pay for equal work actually means as far as the women's soccer players go and all the people who are supporting them, including President Biden, is always tweeting out his support of these poor women who are being discriminated against and being forced to pay soccer for a fraction of what the men make, what they're actually trying to get the courts to do. And apparently now there's so much political pressure on the men that they now have to support the women in this ridiculous claim. But now what it actually means is that equal pay for equal work 
means the women get paid more than the men. Not the same. They are in court demanding a contract that's far better than the one that the men have, better than the one that they agreed to, and better than the one that they turned down. And they want to renegotiate it after the fact, already knowing that they won the World Cup. So as ridiculous as all these baseless claims are that there's some fictitious gender pay gap, the gender pay gap completely results from the choices that women make, which is highlighted with their contract. They chose the safer contract. They chose a contract that had a base salary. They didn't want it all on the come. They chose all of these benefits like childcare assistance. Maybe the men didn't need that. They didn't want that, right? That has value. When you're just looking at the monetary compensation and you're ignoring the value of the non-monetary compensation, obviously there's some kind of gap. But once you factor in the value of the non-monetary compensation, and sometimes that's more time off, uh, more flexibility in your schedule, and when you factor in the fact that a lot of women take breaks from the labor force when they have their children, sometimes they're absent for many, many years, and then they go back, those breaks have a cost in terms of experience. So you have fewer years of experience, maybe you're going to earn less. Maybe you're not going to make as many connections. You're not going to be in a job long enough to get as many promotions. So these are the factors that cause, on average, men to be paid more than women. None of these factors have anything to do with sexism, because even if somebody is sexist, They can't just pay women whatever they want. They have to pay what the market will bear. And if somebody is productive, their pay is going to be commensurate with their productivity. But this case of the Women's Soccer League just really is an incredible example of the absurdity of all this, especially since the women were actually paid more than the men and had the opportunity to have the exact same deal as the men And they didn't want it because the deal they negotiated as women was better.